Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Thanks for tuning in again. My name's Amelia and I'm your host today. We have a very special guest coming in all the way from Longreach today. We've got Ben, who is a project officer. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks, Amelia. Really, really uh, pleased to be able to join you. I think it's going to be good fun. Yeah. Could you start with a little bit about what is your job? What is a project officer? That's a really good question. And when I finished uni a few years ago, I didn't really understand what a project officer was. Basically, uh, my role as a project officer um, sits within an organisation called a Natural Resource Management Group, an NRM group for short. Basically, there's 54 of those groups around the country that provide funding for agricultural and environmental projects to sort of improve the state of things in those areas. So I work for a group called Desert Channels Queensland, and they're based in Longreach. And my role as a project officer is basically to plan a project, whether it's a one-year project or a five-year project. We have all these different milestones that we have to meet for if we, if we want to have our outcomes at the end of those five years, we have to set milestones. That's like little achievements along the way. And basically, my role is to make sure that everything is done, all, all, the, all the equipment that's needed, all the personnel, what their roles are, that's all sorted out like in advance. And we do on-ground work. We have to engage with various members of the community, whether that's landholders, national parks, you know, traditional owners, uh, government, all those sort of people. So that's a big part of it. Uh, you don't you don't get anywhere running a project without uh, the community being on board. Uh, and then once we've done work, whether that's you know spraying weeds or putting in infrastructure or whatever it is, we have to monitor that work, that progress. So that's when the sort of environmental surveying comes in. You need to be able to prove, just simply monitor um, the progress of your work, so that you can then report back to often the governments, the state or federal government, where we get our funding from, to show the work's been done basically that's that's really like the, the role of a project off it's pretty simple um in its parameters but um i'm only new so i'm still learning how to do it fantastic how long have you been doing this job for uh this specific job about five months okay yeah in western queen in western queensland yeah so quite new are you new to the area as well um i'm new to long reach but after school i i came out to western queensland to take a gap year and i worked in different properties and i Works at a dinosaur museum as a tour guide and a fossil preparator. So I, I love Western Queensland. It's it's a very um, underrated part of the country. So whoever's listening to this, uh, once you have the chance to travel, or if you have the chance to travel in Queensland, come out here. It's it's gorgeous. It's very different. It's very vast. But it's it was certainly um, an alluring part of the country for me to to come and work in. Can you tell us, particularly for people who may not have had the opportunity to visit yet? What is the natural environment like in where you're working and also what are some of the environmental challenges that you're facing as an NRM? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So basically our group manages the Lake Eyre Basin part of Queensland. So if you're familiar with Lake Eyre, it's that, it's that massive lake which is in South Australia and all its water, um, a lot of that water drains from Queensland, a bit of the Northern Territory, a bit of South Australia and New South Wales and it's a very arid environment. So that lake is typically dry most years, and it's only in rare, like, one-in-20-year events, like rainfall events, that it'll actually fill up. The area that I'm in is 
has like probably an average rainfall of probably 200 mil a year. Now, if, if you're listening from Melbourne, your, your rainfall is probably up around 800 mil, maybe 1,200, I'm not sure. Um, on the coast of Queensland, we're actually herald from, it's probably around yeah 1,500 mil, so one and a half metres of rain. It's very dry here. So the environment is, is adapted for that. It's, it's evolved. Uh, all the plants, all the animals have evolved to be very hardy. All the trees are often like a, a grey colour because they don't need as much chlorophyll in their leaves to photosynthesize that they know how to preserve water and it's very flat so all this landscape is very flat and it's actually the remnants of an inland sea that was here about 100 million years ago because australia is such a tectonically inactive place it's remained flat so you come out here there's very few trees there's actually like savannah grasslands for, for much of western queensland uh, the sun rises the sun sets are golden they're gorgeous it's a very different place and it can get really hot in summer i will be missing the beaches and, and the bush of bundy where i come from but it's a it's a magic place and it's part of your backyard so you should come and see it it's <laughs> already gone a bit of a rave but i do love it out here <laughs> i think it's good and i'm hoping a lot of us are going to have a lot more opportunities to explore our backyard if there's less overseas travel that means yeah get in the sure. car go for a drive yeah and that's that's already happening for the, for the states that that can travel um we've seen so many tourists come out here i think uh, caravan manufacturers are totally at their wits end because they can't keep up with demand at the moment so there's a lot of tourism going on and that's really really good for states like queensland because it's keeping us afloat that's good fantastic to hear so what are some of the environmental challenges? So a lot of us would be aware of issues with the reef, issues with rainforest, these kind of wetter environments. What are some of the ecological challenges for drier areas? So really the, the main things that are out here and the, the, the same things that my organisation focuses on are weeds particularly. So they're uh, woody weeds, they're trees mostly that have been introduced from other countries. We also have issues with the management of grazing land. Um, there's a lot of fantastic farmers out here, graziers who, who know how to run their country, keep it in really good order. It's, it's a very biodiverse place. But when you have prolonged dry periods, when you have to take out a, a loan from a bank to continue your, your business, people have a lot of debt and that drives people to get as much out of their country, out of their grass as they can. And that can lead to some poor environmental outcomes. So it's, it's really those two are the, are the big concerns where, where we spend most of our time and energy, particularly those woody weeds. So there's a plant called prickly acacia, uh, another called Parkinsonia, mesquite, there's rubber vine, there's mother of millions. There's all sorts of weeds which have come to the country either for garden plants or because someone thought it would be a good idea to have more shade out here. And that's definitely true. We don't have much natural shade on the plains. But the problem is that these, these trees are really good at reproducing and they've just taken over this landscape. And that has big implications for production, for grazing potential. So they shade out all the grass so you can't actually grow grass in your paddocks. And that also means that um, all the animals which live out here in these plains, things like these little, these little dunarts, which are marsupial, and they live down the cracks in the black soil here, they're also being pushed out. So that's... That's mostly what we work on. Do you have issues with any pest animals? Like have you got goats and pigs? Yeah, for sure. Those two are probably the biggies. Um, the interesting thing with goats though in the last probably five to ten years is that people have seen that the goats that are running wild in 
Outback Australia have, have actually adapted to the harsh conditions. They're a type of boar goat and they're actually fetching really good prices now. So there's the impact of goats is really reduced because everyone's caught them all and been, been selling them to, to our Middle Eastern and American markets. But pigs are a major concern. They, I've just been out in the Simpson Desert last week inspecting some artesian springs. Pigs are definitely a big concern, like disturbing those spring areas. So are camels. We've got 2 million camels in Australia. They run riot out there. But from a biodiversity perspective, cats are probably the worst. And there's heaps of cats out here. And they're really hard to control. They're probably a major pest. There's also foxes occasionally, a few rabbits. Yeah, all sorts. The cats have surprised me. I'd assumed that they would not survive in arid areas so well. Oh, yeah. They are incredible. Incredible animals, like really good hunters. And, and yeah, they, they seem to be hanging on even in the in the Simpson Desert <laughs> because there's a lot of food available for them. They don't actually need to – it doesn't appear that they need to drink water. They're a biggie. But we should go get on top of them because, like, if you if you study or if you study zoology in these arid environments, one of the best ways to, to see what little marsupials and birds and lizards you have around is actually just to shoot a cat and cut it open and you'll find, like, the gut content, tell, like, is actually one of the easiest ways to, to find out what's living in that environment, which is a bit of a, a gory thing, but, like, that's that's – just how you how you do it <laughs> it's a bit macabre but i can see how to be very effective because <laughs> yeah they find them all for you yeah good luck trying to catch those lizards and like most of the stuff out in the desert is, is nocturnal anyway so it's very hard to, to spot things, it the things you learn coming back to your job what does an average day at work look like for you sort of half and half in the office and in the field at the moment especially in winter uh, as we approach summer it gets really hot so we don't go out as much. So in the office, it'll be planning for future work, sort of sorting out the data from different monitoring sites. What else do we do? Reporting back to government, reporting back to where we get our funding from. That's a big, big area of our time gets, gets put towards that because we have, to, we have to be very thorough. The government wants to know that its money is being spent, well, our money um, is being spent well, which is, which is good, but it can take quite a lot of time in administration. We have drones, which we fly uh, for monitoring purposes. That's really something that which has ramped up in the last five years as, as drones have become far more effective and, and more affordable. So they're really good for looking at the change of ground cover, counting weeds. So we, we're using artificial intelligence in our organisation to really save us a lot of time in, in looking at infestations of weeds, like counting how much, like what the density is. But yeah, otherwise, if you're out in the field, it's, it's trying to, to work with landholders and that can be really easy. That can be an absolute pleasure. It can also be really tricky because you're talking to people and people are, people are complex and there's history here. If you're a newcomer like myself, if, you, if your grandparents aren't in the cemetery down the road, you're not a local and it's sometimes harder to, to earn trust, to earn respect, especially if you don't have, like if you weren't brought up speaking the language of, of cattle because that's a lot of, like, that's everything that's out here. It's, it's grazing country. Um, so that's that's the sort of stuff that is involved in my job, just as a, a broad explanation. So you said of half out in the field actually doing the bits and pieces, which is why a lot of people go into environmental sciences, and then also the other joyous half that most of us have in every job, which is the paperwork and actually replying to emails. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. That's how it goes. You mentioned that you're using drones and i'm assuming that's to get visual imagery of the areas yeah are you also using camera traps and other 
taking photos and that sort of thing to look at change over time? Yeah, for sure. So we are constantly buying star pickets because we put in monitoring uh, photo monitoring points everywhere that we do work. So it's basically just two star pickets in a line or three star pickets in a line. And you just take a picture from that same point facing the same direction, however often as you need, as you're required to. And that shows that shows change. It's really, really cool when we go in and control a heap of prickly acacia and then like a year later it's all dead and you start to see the pioneer grasses and, and forbs coming back and then after a couple of years if you've had good rain then you get the perennial grasses and you see this ecosystem recover. Yeah, we use camera traps for some of the bio, biodiversity projects that we run, time-lapse cameras, so all that. There's lots of gear and that's that comes down to our managers and, and the CEO, like they're really innovative, they're willing to try different stuff. It's a really cool place to be working. It's really awesome to hear technology starting to be integrated kind of intuitively into environmental management. That's really exciting to hear. Yeah, well, it saves time, saves money and uh, makes it safer and more efficient, more transparent. So it's, it's really cool to see that for sure. It sounds like you're bringing together a whole lot of different things, right? So you've got obviously the ability to sit at a desk and do work, but also go out into the field and then talking to people. What are some of the specific skills that you would say someone needs to have to be able to do a job like you're doing? A lot of the, a lot of the work we do, it's, it's people skills and it's time management skills, which I'm still, still needing to improve. There's, there's all sorts, like you say. The ability to talk to people of, from various backgrounds, is probably a biggie and I guess that's a that's a skill that a lot of people are going to need in in all sorts of roles and I think which is really important in in STEM careers because it it really it goes against that stereotypical scientist in a lab coat locked away image which people have of scientists but that's that's what we need as as modern day scientists because especially with the sort of the state of of science and of truth in our culture at the moment and in the media I think there's more and more of a need for clear communication and like a, a valuing of, of facts and of evidence-based thinking. So communication is really important. A broad understanding. So I was, I was lucky with my degree, which is in environmental science. Uh, it's quite broad and this work is quite broad as well. But then again, like if you've got a specific knowledge on, I don't know, the growth habits of grasses or if you're a the word i don't know it's like you have to be able to write reports so that's that's important understand the technology you're working with understand the systems i think it's the the systems thinking in terms of an environmental system and all the different components and and the balancing of um of needs i'd say that that's the biggies yeah i think stakeholder management especially with you've got a lot of different stakeholders that you're working with and they all have very different drivers and being able to manage all of those and communicate to them in such different kinds of languages is really important. Yeah, that's the knack. And that takes time, hey? So Definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's not it's nothing you can really learn at uni. You just have to be like knowledgeable enough on the topic so that then you can yeah, learn to speak the language. Yeah, and do a lot of listening, I think, as well. For sure. Yeah. And you get you get people who might be a bit touchy about certain topics, so you gotta be really careful how you tread and what language you use and yeah. How to keep people calm if, if the, you know, if they you're going down a rabbit warren, you don't want to be going down. Yeah. <laughs> so there's the people skills, there's the technical skills. Do you need to do any kind of data management as well, or data analytics? Yeah, yeah, I think you do. Uh, I haven't had to do too much of that myself just yet, but for sure, like all that sort of stuff. We have we have GIS 
mapping people and we have people who are particularly good at, at the data and number crunching. So often we give the, the harder stuff to them. But yeah, an understanding for, for all that is, is pretty important. And I think if you most of your science degrees are going to sort of cover off on that anyway. And if you haven't got a degree, like a lot of people can work in this in this industry, in this line of work without having an environmental degree per se, particularly if you have a strong skill base in terms of stakeholder management, talking to landholders, or just like a, a deep knowledge for agriculture and the environment. It depends on the organisation you're with. I'm, I'm really lucky with my one. Like they always play you to your to your strengths. They try to you know improve your skills in, in areas where you where you need that. But yeah, they look at what you got and use you where you can where they can. So I'm pretty lucky in that sense. Great to have a boss or to be in an environment that will help you develop your confidence and your skills at the same time. For sure, yeah. There's a lot of interest in environmental management jobs. It can be often quite competitive. How have you actually ended up where you are? Like what is what is your path to getting to being in this particular position? Well, could be here all day like trying to, trying to spell that out, but I've always been like, passionate about the environment. I was brought up in the bush. My parents sort of um, fostered my interest for, for various things. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's what I care about most, really. So, so I think with with environmental science, there's there's all sorts of different jobs you can you can get into. Often, like you say, Amelia, the, the jobs of the uh, can be quite competitive, and that that's often along the coast and in the bigger cities. But if you if you look wider, there's some really good opportunities where you have more responsibility, a greater diversity of work in regional areas and that's something that I, I think it's that Australians and, and young young Australians could could really reflect on more. Yeah, just the opportunity of, of getting away from home or getting away from comfort or I know it's it's hard to leave your friends and family, but in rural and regional and remote parts of Australia there are incredible opportunities to learn, to have an impact, to see some amazing things. And that's that was probably what made it easier for me to get this job here. Not that it was not that it was easy, but yeah, it's just something I think people should should look at. But basically, I, I came out of uni. I got a job. I got my foot in the door uh, with another NRM group, and that was as their communication and engagement officer. So I didn't study, you know, media or comms stuff, but I was pretty good at it generally throughout you know, the last ten years. I've, I've just done a lot of stuff. It's a passion of mine as well as like writing things and taking photos and making films. So that got my foot in the door there. But it was really project work, like the opportunity to to use what I learned at uni, which is what I was chasing. So once you're in, like once you're in with a, an organisation, once you're in with a like a circle of environmental scientists, then you hear about the opportunities that come up. You need to you need to be part of that word of mouth, and yeah, just just seek see what opportunity what, what's out there and, and go for it sometimes you have to yeah sometimes you have to move and I think that can be one of the best things for people in, in your life and in your career um, is to go somewhere new and throw yourself into it definitely with new places come so many new opportunities and just like the broadening of the horizons for sure and and out here like just on that in places that are more remote there's less people so there's firstly there's less competition to get it to get a job but there's also less, there's more of a responsibility on you to, to be a jack of all trades. And so if you, my idea could be to stay out here for a few years, but if I ever did want to go back to the coast or go elsewhere, I feel as if 
what I'm learning in this current job is going to be really applicable and like really good broad skills for any other job in future. So I think that can be quite an advantage. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it because I think one of the downsides of having all our universities in high density areas is that we get used to living in cities and we forget that there's so many opportunities out rural and regional. For sure. And this is an awesome part of the, the country. Like I don't have to sit in traffic all day to get to work. There's a heap of stuff going on socially. It's not some boring place out here. It's 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 awesome. It's like a great life. And um, I'd really encourage people to, to look outside their bubble. Yeah, I like it. And I think just as a result of recent lockdowns, people are already starting to think that the countryside's looking pretty good. All that frankly, that sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And, and with like the advent of Zoom and, and this sort of change in our culture, around meetings I think that a lot of people are going to be working from home more and more and and maybe yeah like come come bush because they don't need to be right there and at their workplace all the time it's exciting exciting time it's going to be interesting what comes out of this pandemic all the goods and good bad good and bad bits of it have you had any experiences like through uni or that have kind of really inspired you to stick with environmental science because it can be quite challenging especially if you've applied for a lot of jobs and not been able to get in or something i think the big thing for me and you might find this with other people that you interview in year 12 i went to this thing called the national youth science forum nysf you heard of that i went in 2006 oh did you <laughs> there you go you know more <laughs> you know it well and truly yeah well, i was i went into it in 2013 so yeah right yeah, so as I'm, I'm speaking to the converted, but for those listeners out there, um, the NYSF is a fantastic, mind-opening, mind-blowing opportunity for a, a high school student. So if you know any young people, if, you have, if you're a parent or grandparent or you, you know kids on your footy team who are interested in science, tell them to apply for this thing. Because for me, um, probably the same as you, Amelia, that really uh, inspired me. It like, made me realise what was possible. And that was like the first time that, you, you start to break down those titles like you've talked about, like what is an environmental scientist? We actually get to, to meet them at those at that forum and and see yeah what the nuances are and what, what they actually do. So that was pretty pretty life changing for me, quite quite honestly. And I'm being from Queensland, I actually went down to, to ANU to study at uni and I think that was probably because the NYSF was held there and I realized like I started to think broader than just my own state for tertiary study um but through uni i don't know like you you have all those seminars you get people guest speakers coming into your lectures and they really provide a a scope for for what's possible and how many complex like niche jobs there are out there and you just gotta you just gotta talk you just gotta find out like what what needs there are and i don't know like i was just for me like how i got my foot in the door with that first job out of uni was i literally like saw this organisation, this building, and I walked in the door and introduced myself um, about a year before finishing uni and talked talk to them about the work they did, showed them how how um, keen I was on their work and, and how inter- interesting it was. And they said just to keep in touch. They asked for my resume and, and sure enough, just before I graduated, they said, well, we've got a job opportunity here. Do you want to apply for it? And that's sort of how I got my foot in the door. So those... Like you got to go out of your way. Like you can't expect someone to just like you can't expect a job to land at, land at your feet. You have to go hunting for it, and you know that's like anything in life. You got to go for it. 
And I think especially with online job applications, if you can make yourself stand out by actually saying hello to somebody and then putting a face to your name, yeah. you're going to do a whole lot better than if you're just one of a hundred resumes. Yeah, bloody oath. And like, it depends on the job you're going for. Like, If it's government, it might be a bit different. But if it's an organisation or a company, ring them up. Ask to talk to the, the manager whose name is down the bottom of the application process and, and just ask them about what the job is, like what it really entails because often the description in the in a job title is, is quite vague So and that's there's nothing wrong with that. that. That shows you're really interested and you might find out that, oh, like what the job actually entails isn't what you thought it was based on the description and you can save yourself a few hours writing an application and like don't write an application, go for something else. So don't be afraid to, to talk to people. This is a we're humans. We we need to talk, and those those organisations want to know that they're going to employ someone who's confident and is committed and really uh, sincere about their application. So send them an email, give them a call. There's no there's nothing to stop you doing that. I think that's fantastic advice. What's something really cool about your job at the moment what helps you get up early in the morning go out there and do the thing it's it's, it's going to be another long-winded story Amelia but um, as a teenager like I was a absolute fossil nerd so not not really not so much dinosaurs but just prehistory and, and paleontology generally and so I had this really interesting like high school life where I like I'd spend my holidays looking for fossils or like volunteering with with museums or you know doing road trips with my parents looking for looking for fossils and that that understanding for the history of our planet and the history of living animals living you know living things really really makes you appreciate what we've got today and how precious and how delicate ecosystems are and so it doesn't take much for you to get depressed looking at the uh, the state of the world where where we're sort of losing what is the result of millions of years of evolution. Um, so to be a, to be in this role where you're working to improve the state of the country, whether that's on a biodiversity project or an agricultural one, that's that's a thrill for me. And I think you can't like while conservation is a really you know clear way to to like improve the state of biodiversity by protecting certain species or ecosystems we live in a world like we can't we can't just have little boxed in national parks or conservation parks or you know bush heritage blocks where it's really biodiverse we want a biodiverse landscape we want our farms and cities to be as biodiverse as they can be and the thing is as much as i understand people's reasoning for veganism or vegetarianism beef cattle sheep and goats in Australia are one of the most sustainable land uses we have. Australia, and that's because Australia is such a dry place. Like for, for large parts of it, there isn't adequate water, let alone fertile soil to grow crops or anything else. Grass-fed livestock is the only option we have to keep people on the land out here and across much of Australia. And it's an option which really coexists with biodiversity, I think. So, yeah, we have to work with people. That's my philosophy. We want to improve the way people are looking after country. So I see that as a, a way to really affect broad scale the health of health of the landscape. So that's my motivation. That's one of my motivations. I also just like hopping in a car and going for a drive because I get to see country and that's just a thrill. Yeah. I think they're they're both totally legit reasons. <laughs> 
And I think we, particularly for those of us in cities, we associate conservation with national parks and with that kind of like, this is an area which is safe and where things are looked after. And then we forget about the value of private land. And I think we also forget that graziers, they, they care about the land and they care. Bloody oath. Like they want to make their world a better place and maybe they just don't have the tools or the knowledge or like the financial resources at this time to do that. Yeah, that's that's it. Hit the nail on the head there. Everyone's Everyone's different, but I'd say the vast majority of graziers care about their country. Firstly, like it will be financially, you know, that care will be down to the fact that they need to make money off their land and if they're to have healthy cattle, they have to have good pastures and they have to have trees for shade and they have to have healthy waterways. So those like production and conservation can and really need to go hand in hand. And you'll see that some of the most successful people out here or some of the big companies, they do that really well. But yeah, it's it's trying to support people to, to do that and to have like a, a long term outlook on on the management of their business and the management of their country yeah that's certainly the way i see things and unfortunately like with with national parks it depends where you are but often i feel they're very underfunded but it's the same with weeds like a lot of a lot of national park managers that i've talked to are somewhat at their wits end because they have big issues on their on their parks like with weeds or with pests and they haven't got the resources to control it so they become breeding ground for invasive animals and plants and yeah, it's a real it's a real concern and then they get a bad image because the landholders surrounding that national park see the national parks as a as that breeding ground and those landholders don't want the weeds on their place so all of a sudden these national parks become the baddies so it's a it's an issue <laughs> and i think that ties into what you're saying earlier about yeah systems thinking and complex problems where there's a whole lot of different things at play and managing them all mm. managing the environment's fine but once you add in economic factors and then also people it gets really complicated and then you add in the press and everyone there needs to be a bad guy and yes oh, tell me about it <laughs> we chose the parkies <laughs> what did you say you we chose the what park rangers yeah <laughs> Is there something that you'd like people listening, particularly if they're in metro areas, that you'd really like them to understand about your job and the work that you're doing? I'm happy to tell people that despite all the doom and gloom that you may feel when looking at the news or social media about the state of the environment, remember that, as you've just said, like it's it's the doom and gloom which sells and that's what people bite onto. So there is a lot, there is a lot, of good work being done and a lot of amazing people, very intelligent, very like committed people who are doing great things in this country and overseas, obviously, that you just don't hear about it. NRM groups, um, they do a, a lot of really good work, but there's there's all sorts of different actors in this in this field. So, yeah, have, have spirit. Like <laughs> there's, there's people looking out for the place, even if it isn't coming from, you know, the top, the top up in parliament, there's a, uh, there's people on the ground that care. And Australia, like I'll, I'll tell you, when you go overseas, you realise how good we've got it here. And we have to set our own standards. We have to keep on like maintaining a high bar, but like we're doing really well here. So all we can do is continue to try and do better. Um, and it's going to get harder as as we go into the future. Very uncertain world uh, geopolitically, but also 
with climate change, we, we don't know like what's what's down the track with environmental catastrophes. So yeah, I don't know. Just I've gone I've gone full circle. I think there, Amelia. <laughs> don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. But I will also say, just to, to especially to you Melbourne folk down there, um, <laughs> uh, with with beef with with eating meat, it's very. I don't want to start a debate here, but when when you when you see meat production in the media, often you get this narrative which is coming from Europe or particularly America, and you see beef, you see cattle being fed their entire lives on grain. So you have these vast areas of the US, Ohio and other states where they grow just wall-to-wall corn and other grains, and then they feed that to their cattle these cows are living horrible lives, locked up their entire life. It's different in Australia. Australia is a very arid place. If you come out to Western Queensland, you could not grow much. There is not the water to grow anything. But we can grow meat. We can grow sheep. We can grow cattle and goats. And that's the, like we need. We need people on country. We can't just leave all this land to look after itself because we've now introduced all these weeds and all these other issues. We need people on country. And the only way to keep people out here is to have a livestock industry. So long story short, try and buy Australian beef and meat. And it's see that as a sustainable choice because in all these paddocks out here, if you took if you looked at the biodiversity as a whole, let's say a national park that's really well looked after, it's got hundred percent biodiversity, let's say. If you looked at the paddock next door, which has cattle on it, you probably have eighty to ninety percent of that same biodiversity. If you compare that to horticultural places where you've got monocrops of soybeans for example or whatever you'd have far less because production of those those food sources can be quite um yeah quite harsh you, you don't have bushes you don't have even even your your soil biota and health can be quite poor so that's that's just something i'm going to throw in there <laughs> yeah and we might get a lot of haters but i think it's important to remember that these systems are complex and you can't import information about other countries' systems and immediately to apply it to Australia and assume that it's all the same. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> so now we've got the, the big contentious stuff out of the way. Have you got any advice for a young person who's considering your career? Like you've already touched on a bunch of things like think about remote areas, get out there and actually try stuff, but any other advice you'd like to throw in? Um, so my main bit of advice, I think, for people going to university, wanting to do this line of work, and I think also you can extend it to almost any career, is realise that what you learn at university, depends on the uni you go to, but largely it's theory-based. And once you get out of uni in the real world, you have to have a level of, like you, you need to learn quickly practical skills. Well, you need to have practical skills and people skills. So I think most people realise this, but... You, you need to complement what you learn at uni with other stuff at the same time. So don't just, like, I'm not going to say that I did it the best way, but I think that people at uni, if you can find yourself internships, if you can volunteer like a, you know, just a total fanatic, whatever whatever you're interested in, or whatever line of work you want to get into, just try and start that work while you're at uni, while you're in second year, you know, go and volunteer here or go and just become friends with the people that are in that industry. First, it's going to help you get a job, but it's going to teach you. You're going to save yourself years. And and if you're truly passionate about something, I think you'll do that anyway. That's I think that's the big game changer for most people, and, when it, and it, especially when it comes to trying to trying to get a job. Um, so don't like it depends on your on your 
means and your ability, but it's good to work in a cafe. I've worked in cafes, worked in other, all sorts of places. But if you can get yourself jobs or, or volunteer opportunities uh, at your uni, you know, with researchers, there's a whole heap of research going on at your uni. Get into that. It's the best way to learn and develop those personal skills, those communication skills, because whatever you do, uh, you're going to need them, even if you're a web designer. Especially if you're a web designer, trust me. (laughs) That's what I'd have. That's my two cents. I think that's fantastic. And the more you can get out there and the more you can work out early is the job the right job for you. Bloody oath. Yeah, because if you you come out of three years of study and then you get a job and you realise, oh, I actually don't really enjoy this or this is not what I thought it was going to be, then you've you could have wasted time. Like this, you never waste time learning, but you know you could have spent that time learning something that you turns out you would actually really enjoy. Definitely, university will give you a lot of skills. It won't give you all the skills you need, and it also won't what the world is that you're you might walk. Yeah, through. and at the same time, like I think we're we're very much pressured in like at school and in our society generally, we're pressured to see university as the only avenue into employment or to the employment that we're looking for and it depends what you're doing but with science like a degree certainly helps and it can be a a real inhibitor to getting a job if you don't have a degree but like I said talk to people because I know a lot of brilliant people who don't suit that university learning environment or who've you know gone and done something else for half their life and then at the age of 30 or 40 have done a master's or done a degree or just through experience and, and knowledge and skills learnt elsewhere that they've, they've got into this in, into this line of work or into science more broadly. So, yeah, keep in mind that universities are businesses. They want you to, they want your money. Don't, yeah, don't fall into that trap if, if it doesn't suit you. I think the other thing I'd like to sort of touch on because, like, we've both been to NYSF and we've both obviously had really positive experiences there is that opportunities like that while you're at school while you're at university, they, they're not as easy to get once you're in the workforce. So take advantage of those opportunities where you get to go out, you get to meet a whole lot of people, you get to have a really intense experience. Go do it. It's great fun. You make contact. It's fun. Yeah, it is fun. Like For starters, it's fun. But then, yeah, when you start to break it down, like it's very valuable. And like you said, yeah, do it while you're at school or do it while you're early on in uni or throughout uni because, yeah, just people love to talk about networking and they're going to go to this event to, to network. Well, I, I get tired of that because I'm not going there to network. I'm going there for a good time. I'm going there to, to learn and to talk to people. And, yeah, a network of people will, may come out of that. And those networks, which do exist, they uh, they shouldn't be underestimated because the, the earlier in your career or your life that you meet people or that you're exposed to people or ideas, everything just fans out from those interactions and those ideas. And before you know it, like you know half your industry. People know you. You know who the players are, who the go-to people are, who's doing what. That, and that's that's invaluable. And you can't, you can't just acquire that overnight. You can't look it up in a research paper. That's the human relationships and it's um, a big advantage if, you, if you're well connected. And, and like you say, I mean, like doing something like NYSF, any opportunity, one opportunity will lead to another. That's just something that I've that always seen, like especially after NYSF. Like the sooner you, you take an opportunity, the sooner you throw yourself into something, you, things lead to, to another thing. And then that's more stuff you can put on a resume to look at it from a selfish perspective. You know, you can put it on a resume, you can talk about it in a job interview, but it's really that those human connections which and, and those opportunities down the line which um, are so advantageous. 
And it's also an opportunity to be validated. Yeah. Like if particularly if you're at a small high school and maybe you're the science nerd and everyone kinds of picks on you, having the opportunity to go to Canberra and be with 200 plus other science nerds <laughs> who are each the only science nerd, that's an oh, incredibly validating shit, yeah. experience. And yeah, you're speaking my language, mate. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, that's what it was like for me as well. Yeah. And then, and then you come out with... Who cares about like industry connections? You've got friends around the country, and it's the same as going to a conference or whatever. Like, depending on what you go to, you can really make great friends. And then all of a sudden, oh, you you feel like going for a holiday to here? Then oh, by the I remember my mate lives there. Like, I might give him a bell, and oh, all of a sudden you got free accommodation. All of a sudden you get to see the place through their eyes and meet more people. It's just you know, make it a small world, make it a small Australia, make Australia greater. <laughs> Yep. And just a, a richer place to live. Bloody oath. Yeah, you're getting carried away here, but what a, what, how good is life? <laughs> We're very, we are so lucky. We are. Bloody oath. Before we finish up, is there anything else you'd like to share? No, I'd just like to make another rallying call to for people to get out and, and see regional Australia and have more of a connection to where their food and fibre comes from and be proud of this country and be proud of, like, biodiversity and the nature that we have because it's so unique and it's so beautiful you just got to slow down and take it in and look for the detail and get out there folks <laughs> and don't think that arid and flat means that nothing's there because you go out exactly. into the desert at night and you'll hear such life and it's it's so exciting to hear yeah more biodiversity out there than, than there is on the main street of melbourne definitely right now <laughs> <laughs> you gotta look <laughs> <laughs> definitely now <laughs> have you got a shout out for a business or a group that you think's doing an awesome job maybe they're having a hard time right now or maybe they're just doing something cool oh, i'd just like to give a shout out to to all the people who've been affected by the virus in in terms of their employment particularly like the catering the arts the tourism industries yeah just shout out to the tour- tourism industry for for hanging on and for for being so adaptable uh, at least up in Queensland where we're still allowed to drive around. It's really good and definitely a reminder when things do start opening up, go explore your backyard because there's so much to see here and that way you can not only can you help the economy but you can also get to know what awesome stuff is here. Yeah, and that and that goes back to like, you know, if you have a great understanding for your country, that influences the way you you live your daily life wherever you are and it influences your voting and what you care about and it can sometimes be hard to connect to the natural environment when you're, you've got a busy daily life or you're living in a, in a city. That's it. Thanks for your time, Amelia. No worries. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been great fun. Pleasure. Anytime. If you like this podcast, you're a little legend and you should check out our website at avid research.com.au and sign up to our amazing email newsletter no spam only email updates and maybe some exclusive content sometime follow us on social media to ask us questions or just to dob in people for interviews 